Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello and welcome history friends, patrons all to the Korean War episode 32. Last time we reached something of a landmark moment in our narrative, because the policy of containment was laid out to the American public and the political world, followed by the gauntlet requesting the necessary support to finance such a policy. This speech, presented to the public via radio broadcast on the 19th of July 1950, is just one of several forgotten chapters in the Korean War. 
While most would be correct in stating that the Korean War solidified the commitment of the United States to combat communism in the wider world, it is when we come to the question of what that looked like that everything becomes that much more interesting. Before the massive military commitments had been completed, before the North Korean People's Army had even properly been pushed back, here was the US President requesting approval and support for this revolutionary policy. One could of course argue that containment had been laid down earlier, and that America's foreign policy actions had been set forth in the late 1940s as the Truman Doctrine, Marshall Aid and NATO were all related in some way or another to the threat perceived in communism to the West. Yet, while this may be true, Truman's speech on the 19th of July 1950 was still a turning point, because here he was, asking for the monies and political support to combat communism directly. There was no call for separate institutions, alliances or conferences to meet the challenges posed by communism. This was instead a straight-up pledge to meet communism head-on wherever it existed in the world. It was a strong policy, at odds with the impressions that the Truman administration had given off to the public over previous months, and it was very popular in the tail end of McCarthyism's poisonous atmosphere. If you'll believe my research though, and hopefully you do to some extent, then you'll agree that it wasn't all that new. In fact, the idea to contain communism and appeal to the political nation for the support had been incepted privately in late January 1950 in response to the changing strategic climate, the looming Sino-Soviet alliance and, most likely, the interpretation of a message between Stalin and Kim Il-sung, where the former encouraged the latter to make war. These shocks to the American system, coupled with the domestic atmosphere of the Red Scare, occasioned a fundamental change in how the Truman administration interpreted America's role in the world. Under Truman's orders by April, NSC 68 would become the basis for American strategy, while such a fact would only be known to a few select officials. To gather sufficient support for such a policy approach, a grave crisis would have to occur, and Korea, already under threat from Kim's regime, seemed a perfect fit for this requirement. Thus the deliberate policy of disengagement from both Korea and Asia in general seemed to follow. The policy of disengagement was so successful that it had virtually everyone fooled, It is unlikely Stalin would have proceeded as he did had he known that the fruits of his labour were exactly what Washington was searching for. Yet, it was in the People's Republic of China that America's policy line was felt most sharply to have changed. After months of declaring their unwillingness to support Korea or Chiang Kai-shek, American moves on only the second day of the Korean War bore witness to a shifting in strategy almost immediately. America would support South Korea, it would contribute troops to its defence, however delicately such troops were contributed, but most shocking of all, America would support Chiang Kai-shek, and the President ordered the US 7th Fleet be sent to the Taiwan Straits. With this move, it was clear to Mao Zedong that everything had changed. The US would contend the total triumph of the People's Republic in the Chinese Civil War after all, and with Chiang Kai-shek under their protection, the previously difficult assault on Taiwan was now unthinkable. What was more, Mao was forced to consider his Korean flank, and to consider the prospect of war with the United States of America. In this episode, we examine the stages of Mao's transformation, as he watched his previously secure position crumble in the face of the revelations provided by containment. If this sounds good, after a suitably long introduction, I will now take you to June 1950. The song of the week this week is brought to you by The Suez Crisis. The Suez Crisis is a series 
available for $5 patrons and above, which will be starting from September 2018. I was about to say September 1950, but no, it did not start 68 years ago. It is starting in only a few weeks. And if you'd like to get on board with that, make sure you sign up on Patreon. I will, of course, be releasing some preview episodes for the Suez Crisis, as I did for the first part of 1956, because the Suez Crisis is part of 1956. It is the second part. And if maybe you weren't all that bothered about what was going on in post-Stalin-Soviet Union in 1956, then maybe a more Western, more conspiratorial conflict like the Suez Crisis will interest you. I have been told in the past that the Suez Crisis is the kind of ridiculously convoluted, diplomatically filled incident in history that when diplomacy fails is made for, because, of course, within it you'll see diplomacy fail, diplomacy be deliberately torpedoed, and diplomacy, well, just be ignored. All those things are to come, guys, so make sure you check out part two of 1956 from September, or hey, go and check out part one, which is already there alongside the Jan Sobieski biography series, and so much more. Patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails, guys. You know the drill by now. The best way to monetarily support this podcast. But otherwise, the song of the week this week is Mama Goes Where Papa Goes. It's a song by Isabel Patricola, and it was released in 1923. Enjoy it, guys. And we will be back, of course, with episode 32. Mao Zedong had reached something of a crisis. Having once felt assured that the sole grounds for concern were to be found in his Soviet allies' policy towards Korea, the pronouncement from Washington on the 26th of June, in a decision taken during the Second Blair House meeting, that America would be sending its Seventh Fleet to sit essentially between the People's Republic and Taiwan, had an immediately destructive effect. It represented the defeat of his old policy, that of attempting to straddle a halfway point between American trade and diplomatic negotiation, and of also leaning more heavily towards the Soviets. In Mao's defence, thanks largely to the fact that the Truman administration's new approach had been kept secret, he had no reason to think that the so-called Middle Kingdom strategy was failing. Ultimately, though, the shift in how the Truman administration saw its place in the world demonstrated that Mao had underestimated and failed to grasp the sense of siege in Washington 
once the Sino-Soviet alliance had been signed. With their policy plainly not working, America's leaders launched a revolutionary new approach, with potentially devastating consequences for Mao. The commitment of the Seventh Fleet seemed to go against all previous pronouncements and comments on American policy. Think, for example, of Dean Acheson's infamous speech to the National Press Club on the 12th of January, where he excluded Taiwan, despite what the New York Times may have reported, and seemed to indicate the possibility that Washington would be comfortable with reaching some common ground with the Chinese Communists. In fairness, we must also consider the possibility that Mao was to blame for the severing of Sino-American relations which followed the Korean War. If Acheson's speech deliberately excluding Taiwan had been intended as a trial balloon to assess Mao's stance, then the attack on the American embassy's offices a few days later, the detainment of several American officials, and the accusations of spying which were leveled towards them all soured what could have been a beneficial relationship. Of course, it was the signing of the Sino-Soviet alliance which dealt the final death blow to any possibility of a Sino-American accord. Cautious though Washington may have been up to that point about the PRC, the signing of that alliance on the 14th of February represented the defeat of its old policy and a confirmation that everything had to change. Mao must have engaged in some intense wishful thinking if he believed that the Americans wouldn't attempt to better their strategic position with something radical in the wake of the Sino-Soviet bombshell. With the communist bloc now determinedly levelled against its interests, how could Washington stand by and do nothing? Wishful thinking indeed, but then the Truman administration had been deliberately careful not to release anything that would suggest an abandonment of its old policy. While they waited for the Korean War to provide the required crisis, Sino-American relations limped on in a cool state of stasis, as everyone apparently just had better things to do. The Korean War represented a great opportunity for Washington to crystallise NSC-68 on the back of a crisis, but it also presented grave challenges to Mao. Initially, Mao's shock at the unfolding events on Korea delayed the formulation of a coherent policy response. Since he had for so long been more interested in concluding his own civil war, Mao could only be pulled away very gradually and reluctantly from Taiwan, and he wouldn't completely abandon his plans for the invasion of Taiwan itself until the 11th of August. As we will see in this kind of two-parter examining Mao, Mao's policy towards Korea was based on the desire to achieve one favourable outcome above all. After he overcame his initial shock, Mao decided that what he wanted was a divided Korea, which contained a pro-Chinese northern regime. Unification under any auspices would prove too unstable, and strategically unacceptable if under the auspices of the UN or United States. The victory of the North Koreans would also be undesirable, since it would then place the Soviet Union in an advantageous position on Mao's flank, and the aforementioned stability problem of a united Korea would undermine Mao's Manchurian border as well. What is very interesting about Mao's eventual intervention in the Korean War was when he chose to get involved. Although historians generally present Mao's decision to intervene as coming just as UN forces cross the 38th parallel, thereby advancing towards the Manchurian border, we would be justified in asking the following question. If conventional wisdom had it that Mao intervened to prevent a UN victory in Korea, then why didn't he intervene earlier in aid of the North Korean People's Army when the UN forces were clearly on the ropes? An intervention at any point in July or August could well have doomed the UN forces hunkering down in Pusan, especially in the earlier phases before sufficient reinforcements were in place. 
By acting at this early stage, Mao would have rid Korea of a Western influence and secured his own People's Republic. It is because he definitely did not do this, and that he instead chose to act only when the North Korean People's Army was defeated and retreating steadily north, that we can suggest another reason for Mao's timetable. Mao chose not to intervene because he did not want a North Korean victory, because he did not want to empower the Soviet Union on his doorstep and create an unstable Korea-wide regime. Only when Kim Il-sung became desperate and the opportunity to realign the political dynamics of North Korea presented themselves, did Mao intervene. That this opportunity meant a proxy war with the United States was unfortunate, but Mao could at least take solace from the fact that the Korean War provided him with an ally in the region and denied Stalin the influence he used to possess in a region so sensitively close to Manchuria. The inaction on Mao's part from the outbreak of war until the actual intervention in mid-October supports the thesis that Mao's infamous arrival on the scene was not a decision taken merely to repel the UN, but also to reorientate North Korea towards a new policy. In spite of Stalin's requests, Mao refused to intervene any sooner, because to intervene at any point before the Democratic People's Republic of Korea was on the ropes would have denied Mao the chance to change North Korea's loyalties from pro-Soviet to pro-Chinese. Mao wasn't interested in reinforcing a pro-Soviet Korea, but he did become interested in the Korean question and he did develop a rational plan to get the most out of that situation. In contrast to China's erratic and primitive human waves which were sent against the United Nations forces, Mao's actual decision to intervene was one of great tactical consideration and foresight. Unless it benefited Beijing, no amount of pressure from Stalin could bring Mao to act. It is therefore ironic that Stalin, Truman and Mao all wished to see the North Korean People's Army fail, and all for their own reasons. Stalin believed it would force the Chinese to get involved, Truman wanted a lengthy war to develop, Mao wanted to prevent an unstable pro-Soviet regime from consuming the peninsula. In actual fact, Mao's diplomatic activity before the decision to intervene was made involved the PRC offering to restore North Korea to its pre-war boundaries, likely through an invasion in return for Western concessions to Beijing, which included the admission of the People's Republic into the United Nations Security Council, in other words, replacing the Republic of China that were currently sitting there. Truman refused these offers because they didn't gel with his policy aims for a lengthy war in the peninsula, and also because the price which Mao demanded was far too high. Of course, because Truman wanted a certain outcome above all, that of a lengthy war which would necessitate increased spending and defensive budgets, Mao's price was always going to be too high. Mao had known war was coming in Korea for some time. Stalin had indicated as much to him in the past, as had Kim Il-sung. Up to the last moment, though, Mao had not known when the war would begin, and as we saw, he had attempted to beat Stalin to the punch by rushing forward with his own plans for Taiwan in the meantime. The outbreak of the Korean War was not examined by the Beijing press for the first few days, but one event which did receive coverage and comment from Mao himself was the announcement in Washington on the 26th of June to the effect that America would neutralise the Taiwan Strait. This was unacceptable, and Mao said as much, perhaps realising that he had been led astray by the official American pronouncements up to that point. On the 5th of January, Truman said in an announcement that the United States would not intervene in Taiwan, Mao noted on the 27th of June. 
Now his conduct proves that what he said was false. Truman has shredded all international agreements related to the American commitment not to intervene in China's internal affairs. Publicly, the Truman administration could point back to international agreements made at Cairo and Potsdam as actually supporting the policy line, which promised to restore Taiwan back to the Republic of Korea. Truman's unilateral statement on the 5th of January 1950, wherein he had claimed that the United States had no special interest in Taiwan or in the person of Chiang Kai-shek, could be discounted as a statement rather than a legally binding international agreement, as those war conferences immediately after the end of the Second World War had been. But Mao, of course, didn't care for such technicalities, or how Washington planned on justifying itself. The anger and frustration over Taiwan took some time to wear off, and until it did, Mao did not formulate a proper strategy towards Korea. Thus, for a time, we see Mao nervously watching the war unfold in the first week of July, as the North Korean People's Army advanced over the Han River and surged down south. Mao was deeply concerned that this would leave the North overextended, and that an amphibious counterattack would doom Kim's regime. Amphibious, you say, but Zack isn't that General MacArthur's top-secret brainchild? Well, actually, no history friend, it's not. The strategy of using an amphibious landing to reverse the advance of the North Korean People's Army and turn the tide of the war was so well known that even Time magazine was reporting on it. In its weekly issue released on the 24th of July 1950, a three-phase strategy was discussed for Korea. See if this sounds familiar to you guys. First, a beachhead at Pusan would be established. Second, strength would be built up for a counterblow. And third, there would be a breakout from this beachhead, as the Time magazine put it, I'm quoting them here, supported by allied amphibious attacks behind North Korean lines on either coast. The only thing Time magazine didn't do was name drop in Sean, but it seems likely that such a place was viewed as the best candidate for any allied landing. Zhou Enlai, China's foreign secretary, claimed that he wanted to pass on advice from Mao to Kim regarding information on how to create a strong defence line in the area of Inchon because American troops could land there. America's war plan, SL-17, called for the strategy outlined in Time magazine, and judging by the Chinese leadership's perceptive estimations of North Korea's vulnerability, this war plan's contents could well have drifted into the lexicon of debate. Indeed, it has to be said that the American war plan and MacArthur's decision for Inchon were hardly original if other sources managed to anticipate them by several months. As was the case with other mysteries of the war, the surprise to Mao wasn't necessarily the content of the plan as much as its timetable. In the last episode, we saw that even MacArthur was planning codename Blue Hearts, an amphibious landing to be launched earlier than the 15th of September at Incheon, to meet the immediate threat which the North Korean People's Army posed. It was only once the latter's advance stalled that MacArthur postponed his predictable strategy. Had he gone ahead with it, it is certain that a late July landing at Inchon would have been bitterly contested, and it may well have failed. Kim's very hesitation at advancing in late June once Seoul had fallen can be partially explained not merely by his surprise at the South Korean defiance, because remember he expected them all to just surrender to him because of all the insurgents that were behind in South Korea that apparently loved him so much, or so the Soviets had told him, but also because the peninsula was plainly vulnerable to such a strategy. I mean, it was fairly obvious, it's a pretty standard military tactic, 
and any advance could be well exploited by the naval superiority that the Allies enjoyed in the peninsula. Mao's policy towards Korea changed from reactionary to plotting once it became apparent that the war would not be a short one and that the anticipated blitzkrieg down the length of the peninsula by the northern soldiers would not actually occur. Since the American forces on land were not being pushed into the sea, it became necessary to adapt to the circumstances. If the war was to drag on rather than end abruptly, then there existed new opportunities to acquire certain concessions and policy aims from the unfolding Korean situation. It was when the penny dropped regarding this realisation at the end of the first week of July 1950 that Mao moved to adopt the stance towards Korea that we introduced nearer the beginning of the episode. Indeed, Stalin's cables to Mao requesting that he intervene on behalf of Kim and support the North Korean regime seemed to have snapped the Chinese leader out of his initially shocked and reactionary policy towards Korea. Stalin wasted little time requesting that Mao contribute his divisions to aid in Kim's offensive. Once the Han River was crossed and the North Korean People's Army was flying by the seat of its pants, Stalin seems to have expected it to soon fail. Indeed, as we have seen, he had worked hard in previous months to ensure its failure when push came to shove. It would have been surprising to Stalin that Kim's forces did, in spite of his sabotage, push relentlessly onwards, but Stalin neutralised this surprise by filtering limiting orders to the North Korean High Command, so that their initial thrust was spent by the third week of July, as we've seen. Stalin's request for aid to Mao seemed to underline the Soviet leader's expectation that Kim would fail. Mao couldn't have known of the lengths that Stalin had gone to jeopardise its supposed ally, of course, in North Korea, but he must have found it suspicious that after pushing and pushing for the war in tandem with North Korea, Stalin immediately began knocking on the Chinese door for help after less than two weeks. Indeed, disagreements over the conduct of the war had already been made clear by Zhou Enlai to the Soviet ambassador in Beijing by the 2nd of July. There, the Soviet ambassador was told that Kim had ignored Mao's warnings about American intervention and that he had grossly miscalculated. Since Kim did nothing without Stalin's approval, and since the leadership of the People's Republic of China well knew that he didn't, this was as much a rebuke of Stalin as it was of Kim Il-sung. How could Stalin have been so naive to think that the Americans wouldn't intervene, Mao may have wondered. Now just look at the mess he's made not only in Korea, but also in Taiwan. Since he was still in a state of aggravated paranoid shock, Mao approved the promise of troops to the Soviet ambassador in the event that an American naval landing was launched behind Korean lines. Mao said that these forces could be dressed and presented as Korean soldiers, but Stalin suggested that, instead of this time-consuming exercise in deception, Mao simply claimed that the Chinese soldiers that did intervene were volunteers rather than an official Chinese policy of aggression. While Mao did away with and ignored much of Stalin's advice over the coming months, this one idea of the volunteers was one which he chose to wholeheartedly adopt. Under this advice from Stalin, Mao would create and then launch China's People's Volunteer Army. For the first few days of July, as Mao moved to respond to the Korean War's challenges, the question which became critically important was that of air support. If Mao acted in Korea, would the Soviets provide air support for their ally and would they collaborate together on a war plan? On the 5th of July, Stalin sent a note saying that 
We consider it correct to concentrate immediately nine Chinese divisions on the Chinese-Korean border for volunteer actions in North Korea in case the enemy crosses the 38th parallel. He then added the apparently innocuous phrase, We will try to provide air cover for these units. This innocent sentence contained three weighted terms. The first, try, absolved Stalin of any failures to actually provide air support. The second, provide, kept as a mystery the manner of air support Stalin would actually provide for Mao's forces if indeed he did. In the end, Stalin would only offer to train Chinese pilots and provide the Chinese with jet fighters rather than actually fight the Allies on Mao's behalf, with some notable exceptions, of course. Finally, the mention of these units pointed to the fact that Stalin would support Mao only in this action and that he would not commit himself to defend Chinese airspace. It was at this point, roughly the 5th to the 7th of July, that the initial shock began to wear off the Chinese leadership, and Mao began to seriously consider, more carefully, his next move. Korea moved from a strategic concern and a burden to something which Mao could gain a potential advantage from, but only if affairs proceeded on the peninsula in a certain way. With Kim's armies becoming steadily more diluted in effectiveness, the vulnerability of North Korea to the anticipated amphibious landing grew exponentially as July progressed. By late July, indeed, General MacArthur was both confident in the Pusan perimeter and planning the amphibious landings at Incheon. It had been a rocky start, as Mao had struggled to adapt to the succession of shocks to the Chinese worldview. Yet by the 6th of July at least, when the Beijing papers were reporting that Washington would not concede defeat, and that victory would not come so fast for Kim Il-sung, the People's Republic of China began to position itself to weigh in on the situation, a process fueled by a program of military organisation and deployment. Over the 7th to the 13th of July, the Chinese High Command worked to move several divisions to the Manchurian area. By the 13th of July, Mao received word of Stalin's interpretation of the word provision, and it was apparent then that the Soviets would not aid China as Mao had hoped. Yet, by the end of July 1950, as a result of these actions and by moving his pieces across the board, Mao could boast 260,000 men on the Korean-Manchurian border. The availability of manpower enabled Mao to pursue another avenue as well. Until the middle of August, Mao also had several divisions waiting on the coast of China in anticipation of the order to move against Taiwan after all. These divisions had been left in place, despite the American policy to defend the Taiwan Straits, because for several weeks very little actual American support for Taiwan materialised, and aside from some cruising aircraft carriers and a handful of vessels, representing the still-gathering 7th Fleet, there was a possibility that Mao could swoop in on Taiwan before the Americans had the chance to reinforce Chiang Kai-shek. On the 11th of August, Mao abandoned this plan and sent these forces to link up in Manchuria, further increasing the manpower pool he had in the region and presenting a serious danger to UN security if they chose to intervene. Yet Mao's abandonment of the Taiwan plan likely came from his own bitter realisation that the Truman administration seemed, by that point, more keenly interested in Taiwan than ever before. The Truman administration was in something of a strategic quandary by late July. Although on the surface Pusan was secure and the need for national political support of the war urgent and morally sound, the truly disconcerting theatre of the war was the Manchurian border. Along this border, thanks to the aforementioned military reorganisation, over a quarter of a million Chinese waited, menacingly, 
Since they followed the guidelines of Warplan SL-17 and required a beachhead at Pusan, it was essential that the Allied forces were not pushed off the peninsula before the next phase of the war was reached. Mao's countless legions of men threatened to undo all that, because if the Chinese decided to intervene at this sensitive time, then the outnumbered Pusan defenders wouldn't be able to hold on. Paradoxically then, even while Chinese intervention was necessary to gain the defence increases that NSC-68 called for, the Truman administration scrambled to delay Chinese intervention, at least until the Pusan perimeter could be secured. It was estimated that not until the end of August would this be actually possible, in spite of what MacArthur had said, and so two tactics were pursued. The first of these was a strong diplomatic pressure campaign designed to bring as much manpower into Korea from UN member states as possible. In the last week of July, we saw strong pressure being exerted by the United States on its allies, particularly the British and Commonwealth. As we saw in episode 27, this produced scenes of several states scrambling to meet the American request. In light of that age-old saying, you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. We don't have time to go through every diplomatic promise which America's agents made to those nations that chose to send their contribution, but the examples of the two states we did look at in more detail, Turkey and New Zealand, demonstrated how Washington was content to use its position to offer carrots to would-be partners in Korea. Turkey had NATO membership dangled in front of it, and New Zealand had ANZUS promised to its leaders. Both acts proved effective and reflected the urgent need in Washington to mobilize as much manpower as possible to defend against the potentially apocalyptic results that a Chinese intervention at this sensitive stage in the plan would bring. The second tactic which the administration pursued was as fascinating as it was incendiary. General MacArthur was to fly to Taiwan and meet with Chiang Kai-shek. What was more, he was to bring with him nuclear-capable B-29 bombers. In future episodes, don't you worry guys, we will deal with MacArthur's adventure to Taiwan and the differences in opinion which the Truman administration and their active general held, but for now it suffices to note that Washington was making use of Taiwan and the Republic of China to pressure Mao Zedong and to underline the importance of holding off from any independent action in Korea. Mao couldn't have known that such threats were only temporary and that MacArthur, as well as the nuclear bombs in the B-29s, would return home in due course once the pressure campaign was no longer needed. Instead, Mao believed that this was one of many attempts by the Americans to intervene yet again in the Chinese Civil War and to intimidate the People's Republic of China into a permanent policy of inaction towards Korea. Yet although on the surface Washington's actions proved effective, Mao was only open to listening to the American threats so long as it suited him to remain uninvolved in the conflict. As soon as the opportunity to alter the northern regime presented itself, Chinese intervention was not something that Washington could even stop. By that point, as we know, Washington desired rather than feared a Chinese intervention since it formed part of their strategy, which was then starting to come together. Everything in good time though, and while the Taiwan flank was worked on, Chiang Kai-shek was sufficiently empowered to launch a singular airstrike on communist shipping and to drop mines into several strategically important ports along the Chinese coast, sending a clear message to an enraged Mao Zedong in the process. Interestingly, when he learned of the deployment of three squadrons of US Air Force jet fighters into Taiwan, Secretary of State Dean Acheson opposed the measure reasoning that such an act would produce the exact response from Mao that the United States was trying to coercively prevent. 
It was critical that when making their threats, in other words, MacArthur did not enable Chiang Kai-shek to cross the line. While mining important ports was acceptable, Acheson was eager to ensure that Chiang wasn't given a load of new toys with which he could bring the situation out of control. In a meeting with the Joint Chiefs, who had approved MacArthur's Taiwan adventure in the first place, Acheson noted on the 1st of August 1950 that If we or the Chinese nationalists should now precipitate hostilities between Taiwan and the mainland, the probability of Chinese communist overt intervention with armed forces in Korea will be greatly increased. We should take considerable military risks rather than place ourselves in the role of an aggressor by launching an attack on our own initiative, unless there are overwhelming considerations of national security involved. It was when Acheson presented this call for moderation to Truman that the president agreed and on the 3rd of August planned to send a personal emissary, Avril Harriman, to Taiwan to explain the administration's position to MacArthur. In some narratives, this appointment of an emissary is presented as Truman's decision to scold MacArthur and rein him in for his independent action, the beginning of what one historian called a perceptible peevishness between the president and the general. Officials at the UN in Britain and France, according to the New York Times, had been told that General MacArthur had chosen this particular time for his visit to Taiwan on his own initiative. While there is a modicum of truth to this, it was under the orders of the President and the Joint Chiefs of Staff that MacArthur had gone to Taiwan. If MacArthur had overstepped, then this was as much the fault of MacArthur as it was explained by Chiang Kai-shek's eagerness to strike at Mao with American support and a lack of clarity where MacArthur's orders were concerned on exactly how far he was allowed to go. In time, the Taiwan incident would be used against MacArthur as evidence of his overstepping. But as we'll see in future episodes, while MacArthur was no saint by any means, the reality was not so straightforward. As the first week of August progressed, it was apparent that the initial danger to the Pusan perimeter was passing. The regular reinforcement and landing of supplies in the critical Pusan port had the effect of beefing up the American defenders and installing a new sense of confidence in Washington that the Americans could indeed hold its beachhead on the peninsula. Yet, as the aforementioned report of the New York Times underlined, MacArthur's journey to Taiwan occurred at a particularly badly timed moment. In what some in the United Nations were told was a triumph of mistiming, MacArthur's visit to Chiang Kai-shek coincided with the return of a long-absent face to the United Nations Security Council, that of Jacob Malik, the Soviet Union's delegate. Now in position in the United Nations Security Council, and with the power to veto any further actions which may escalate the war in Korea, it seemed that America and her allies would see their unity of action in Korea jeopardised, and indeed, Malik set to work preparing a long list of vetoes. Just as the political situation was changing in the United Nations then, so too was the military situation changing in Korea. Harriman and MacArthur hadn't only discussed the nature of support to Chiang Kai-shek, also on the cards, during their meeting on the 8th of August 1950, was the question of an amphibious landing to take place, and well, would you believe it, the destination was in John. Harriman confirmed that he would be bringing news of these plans to Truman, and the president wasted no time in approving them on the 9th of August. As the first inklings of foreign military support began to arrive in Pusan in mid-August, 
the Korean War entered another distinct phase. Soon it would be time to launch the anticipated Allied counterattack, and only then would it become clear where the People's Republic of China stood and whether the Americans would have the lengthy conflict that their leaders desired. Next time, we'll resume our untangling of the contradictory and fascinating diplomatic messages coming out of the major powers. But until then, I have been Zach, this has been the Korean War, and you have been a wonderful history friend. Thanks for listening, guys, and I'll be seeing you all soon. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.